Here's what we're going to do tonight. We are finishing off a few questions that are left. And I want tonight, as the close of all series, to be practical. I want to give some practical tips. So that means that people who are not going to like the lists I make, unless it's helpful, let's not debate the theology of the church all over again and the ecclesiology. We've done that for five weeks. I'm trying really hard to make lists tonight that would be helpful to people uh, rather than just me looking like an authority. I know some of you, we've had this issue, don't like authority and don't like my lists. But I'm trying to be helpful and practical. So please push back, but keep that in mind that I'm trying to be helpful. If you want to put this whole thing in context, we spent five weeks making the case that Christians were meant to be part of a local church. That that was the intent, that is part of what we're supposed to do to be mature believers, that without being part of a local church, as we've defined it, very difficult for us to live out that part of our faith that we're supposed to do collectively. But tonight you're going to see some practical questions about it. For example, as I'm searching for a church, this question was asked by you, and all of these questions, by the way, come from your cards. Is the church supposed to feed us or supplement us in our faith? You can interrupt at any time and push back with this or just give me your answer because, frankly, you guys have more experience in this probably than I do. My first comment to this question is simply, it depends on what you mean by feed us. Right away when I see this question, I think that there might be a reorientation that we have to do, which is thinking of a church as a place that we serve and that we belong in a community rather than thinking of it in such a utilitarian way, which is, is it supposed to feed me like, in other words, it's supposed to be taught in a way that feeds me, or should it just be a supplement to my existing faith? Well, it could be both. The reason I don't quibble too much with the word feed is we've seen over and over that in Ephesians 4, the purpose of the church is so that the places where the gifts can be used, especially those of pastors and teachers, they can equip us so that we can become more mature in the faith. And that's going to happen in the church. So, yes, you should be fed sort of, I'll put that in quotes, and I'm going to come back and kind of pull it down a little bit later. But I think it should be a supplement to your faith. In fact, I would say it differently. It should be the place that your faith is lived out primarily. I say primarily because I don't think you should live out your faith exclusively in the local church. And I know some of you have argued that we should live our faith exclusively outside the church and just be members of the universal church. But like I said, we're not, we're not rehashing the last five weeks. I would just say that the way I would answer it is that it should be a place not only that supplements your faith, it should be the place where your faith is lived out primarily and the place where it's expressed. And yeah, I hope that you're maturing and growing there if that's what the questioner asked by feeding. Anyone want to jump in and add to this? Yeah. I would say on the, on the primarily question, that maybe um, your faith should be lived out primarily outside the church, but not necessarily as part of the utilitarian universal church, but more as an outgrowth of your faith outside in the world. Okay, so an outward focus. I accept that. I think that's good. And I'm not trying to say that you should have your faith be inward. I think that one of the things I've tried to make very clearly is a lot of us forget sometimes that the way that we're wired is to express our faith collectively. And last week I even commented about some of the things I hear sometimes like, just be the church wherever you go. It's like, that's very hard to do unless you're taking people with you. Because being a church involves a collective group of people. And so we came up with a Lone Ranger version that sounds like a church when we say just be the church. And it's better than saying the church is a building. I agree it's one better step, but it ignores the fact that a church is a collection of people. It's almost impossible. It's almost an oxymoron sometimes when we say that. All right, that's my answer there, unless somebody wants to linger on it. Here are three questions that came together. Is church shopping, or some people call church hopping, Appropriate, i.e. finding a church that's right for me. Is this too individualistic? Somebody else asked, how do I know what the right church is for me? Does it matter what church we go to? So get ready. People who don't like lists, get ready. I'm going to make a list. <laughs> Sorry. But I want it to be something that is helpful. So the question has been asked, what do I look for in a church? And I'm not going to rehash the purpose of the church list, but it's going to look very similar. Here are some things I would look at in looking for a church. The first three are primary. Everything else is going to get kind of distant. So these are kind of in order. Number one, is Christ the true head of the church? That church? I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, but I, I, I got to tell you, there's some churches already that would be disqualified. Yeah. I was just saying, how would you determine that? 
And that's a very practical thing that you raise, which is from the appearances, or if you read the website, or if you look at the statement of faith, it might be hard to tell. But I will tell you that there are some churches that if you read the statement of faith, you can tell faster than others that it's not centered on Christ. So I'm citing Colossians 1, Ephesians 1 and 2, which kind of really point to the centrality of Christ. Two, is scripture considered the ultimate written authority for faith and practice? I worded that very carefully because we went through a whole series on inspiration and authority and, and infallibility. And I'm just, I'm sidestepping that for a moment. I'm just saying is that the ultimate written authority for faith and practice, regardless of where they stand on infallibility or inerrancy, and that you can usually tell by the way they state things in their, in their statement of faith. Again, there's a few churches that would drop out at that point, not many. But that's something I think I would prescribe to you. I'm not just describing, I'm actually prescribing to it. I'm saying that's something you should look for. Number three, is the gospel of Jesus Christ taught without compromise? This is very hard to tell at first, but I'm going to give some examples of what I mean. I am talking about the essentials of the faith, some of the ones that Morgan defined when he gave us the essentials. And you can see most of these from the way a statement of belief is structured. Um, for example, Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says, you really should not have anything to do with the gospel being changed in any way, the gospel that was taught to you, even if an angel should come from heaven above and tell you differently. So I'm talking specifically about the fundamentals, like faith in Jesus Christ, like the exclusivity of Christ, which is becoming harder and harder in some churches to maintain. The deity of Christ, salvation by grace, Christ's bodily death and resurrection, God's triunity, the fundamentals. Morgan had a list that he believed were probably like the list that if you took one of them away, probably dropped off. I'm just saying that there is a list. You might quibble with one or more, but I would say it's very hard to take one of those away and still call that a place that you should invest as a local church, your faith and community. These three are the ones that I think are important, very important. The next ones I'm going to give are in decreasing importance. And they continue to decrease in importance from this point. But I think these three are, in my mind, non-negotiable. Number four, still important, but not as important as those. How effective is the church's teaching to equip people? And I'm talking specifically about that Ephesians 4 type of equipping. How effective is the church's teaching to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature? I stated it that way because some people go to a church and they don't like the teaching because of some other reason. And I would say that there are valid reasons that you might not like the teaching. But really important, no matter how much you even like the teaching, is are you becoming more mature as you listen? Are you being equipped? Are you being driven to unity in the body? Because that is the purpose of teaching in the church, as we're told in Ephesians 4. So you might say... I don't like the guy's teaching, or even the gal's teaching, or I love it, but I still think it should hit this at a minimum, because that is what we're told in scripture should be the purpose of why pastors and teachers are equipping the saints. Five, since we've been talking so much about community, and it being a place where we do things collectively, you might want to evaluate that. Last week, we spent some time looking at some churches that might get so large that they can't hold a community together anymore unless they break up into smaller pieces. So my fifth one would be, is the church a place of fellowship and community? What does that mean? Since those are buzzwords. I further define it like this. Is it welcoming to all? including all levels of maturity in Christ, whether you're a new believer or somebody who's been around for a long time, all social and economic backgrounds, all ethnic groups, all levels of orientation towards God. In other words, whether you are still struggling with your old nature, whether you think you've got it all figured out, wherever you are in line with your relationship with God, are you seeking? Are you sure? Is it welcoming to all of those people? And are there ministries where you can serve and put down some deep roots? Is there a place for you to serve? It's going to be very hard to be committed to a local body if there's no place to serve. Again, that might take a little bit of time to figure out, but if you see that door completely closed, it's just a question to evaluate. I don't think, by the way, that 
as you go down this list, that any one of these just disqualifies a church outright. But you really are thinking, if I've got a choice to make and I'm not already committed somewhere, these things would be great to have in one place. Okay? Six, is the church outwardly focused in both preaching the gospel and in serving others? That's kind of where Joseph was coming from just a moment ago about the outward focus. If I were to highlight and underline a word, which I forgot to do, it would be both. Because it's rarer to find churches that are able to stand in a correct tension between preaching the gospel and serving others. We err very frequently on one or the other. And I don't know that anybody has a perfect balance, but there should be an element of both. We're not the Peace Corps, and we're also not just getting people to believe in four little things on a tract. There is a little bit of depth to the Christian life, especially in this way. Seven. And this is where it starts getting to preference. Are the church's secondary views compatible with your views, like eternal security, free will, God's sovereignty, election of the saints, eschatology, baptism? Maybe, just maybe, if you've got huge issues about one of those things, you'd at least find a place where you're not going to have those huge issues so that you can remain in community with everybody else. Right from the start, you don't have that issue. But again, this is getting increasingly a matter of preference. And that's why the last one I put up is, how does the church's worship and liturgy fit your taste or preference? I put that at the very bottom. I would observe that most of us start with that one. That's kind of where we first evaluate the church. And I think there's enough churches out there right now that I would think you could find many of the things, especially one through three for sure, four through six pretty easily, and then you could probably still find a place that has some sort of worship and liturgy that fits your preference. Yes, Ben. More of a question. Say you're only finding churches that have three or four of the first six. Um, basically, I guess my question is, how long should you, like, if you've been in church hopping for a while, how long should you just say, okay, I'm just going to find a place, even if they don't fit all six of the first six? That's a tough question for the following reason, because I think it'll depend on the motivation of why you're still searching. So like if I knew you and I said you're being too picky, that could be a reason, right, that I'd say cut it shorter. If there really is, there's places in the world where there just isn't the kind of place that some people would connect to. And I've heard that from people in here. And I want to say that I'm sensitive to that, because people have said, there's just nothing out there that really reaches me. Or, I even wish this was more of a church here, because this does reach me more than other places. But the only counterbalance I would give you, too, is we're kind of putting our growth as being part of a local church on hold. So if you said it was six months, I'd say, okay, you're really trying to make a good investment. If it's a year, I'd say, you know, you're still trying to really look. Now I'm starting to question why is it taking that long with all the choices. If it's been two or three or more years, then I think there's something else at play. And I would say that even if nothing else was at play, you just really are stumped and you can't find the right one, I would say now might be the time to start thinking, I still need to be part of a local body for what it is, but you do need to be somewhere at some point if you believe, as we've been saying in this series, that not being part of a church is not only kind of contra the intent of what we were supposed to do as mature believers and disciples, but that also there's a benefit that I'm not receiving by being disconnected from a local church. So yeah, I think at one point I'd say, you know what? Plug in. Plug in and as you begin to plug in and serve, maybe you'll make it into some of those things, which I'll talk about in a moment when we talk about leaving the church. Then that last part that you just said was what I was going to say, which is sometimes there are things that we want in a church and we look around and we visit a lot of places and we don't see it, but maybe that is an opportunity for us to start something in a church. Yeah, I think that the question usually is like, how is it going to interface with where I am today and where they are today? But if this is really a dynamic relationship, you probably would bring things to them that hopefully will make it more of those things that you would like to see. That's how we're called to serve. That's how we're called to use our gifts in the body. So some churches aren't gonna allow that. You have to evaluate that as well. Like you can't walk into a church that thinks it's got it all established and it knows where it's going. And by the way, sometimes the church is wise in saying, hey, that's very good, but we're not really going to do that. 
we know what our mission is and what our focus is and we're not going there. And we should be fine with churches who are focused on what their vision is and they're not going to be 70 things. I think we should be okay with that. So we shouldn't take that as a, you don't get it. You know, we could have had this great ministry. You should just realize that that might be the case. But a lot of times we don't even think of how we could bring that. So I think that's right. Megan? So what do you think trying out a new church should look like? Because I think for me a lot of times it's easy to just like go somewhere one time, kind of try and like run through these things sort of, and then assess from there. But you pointed out like, a lot of these take time and maybe a bit more investment. So I'm wondering what you think is kind of like the model way to like evaluate a church. I think you have to go repeated times to evaluate a church fairly. Now you might go and just say, I know already this is not for me. There may be some places where it might be just disqualified right from the start. Um, there were a couple books I'd read on a previous series that where they did some of that church shopping or they were kind of like the undercover shopper at a church to try to figure out like what the church was like. But one of the criticisms that I think was fairly leveled at them was, you went this one time. It's very hard to draw a conclusion of what this entire church is by the one visit that you made. And by the way, visiting a church is often very Sunday centric, right? That's when you visit a church. Like you may not know what they're like in the life of that church or in its other activities because you might just read, oh, they do this, they do this, everybody does that. But you might not know that going to that event is one of the best expressions of that activity or that way they go deeper. Now, I'm mindful of how much time do we really have to go to a church and try it out for an entire six month period and then move on. That would probably take too long. But every relationship is like that, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of relationships I would say that you can know right away, that's not the right relation for me, whether it's friendship or dating or whatever kind of normal relationship you could have. You can just go, no. There's others that you kind of have to sit with for a little while and say, you know what, I can't judge it by the first time that something happens, right? I need to kind of say, all right, let's try this again. Let's try this a little bit longer. That's to fairly judge, right? And I think also to get away from just a pure Sunday mentality of like, I, all I know is this one hour service that they did. And they might say, hey, our Sunday service is okay, but that's not what we're about. Like we have much deeper expressions that you would really get excited about, but I got to get you into them and that might take time. Morgan? Yeah, I think that's where your point number four maybe needs to be seeing in the fellowship with others. I mean, I think you got to get to actually, you know, I would say after maybe a second or third time when you actually start talking to people and actually, you know, is there a fit of relationship here or are the people yourself growing in Christ with, because that's what church is supposed to be, journeying together and knowing God and knowing others, you know, and so you need to quickly, I would say you need to quickly get to the point where you're trying to evaluate, like, oh, you know, I actually kind of drive well with these people, or, oh, they even, you know, maybe they challenge you in certain ways, but, but like, relationships need to be central in that decision, I would say. Okay. Joseph. I would say jumping off of that. Then, then from there, once you have some of those relationships established, then see, is there a place to serve? Is there a place where you can get involved serving? Get the relationship first, then serving, and then from there, you can really make an accurate um, choice, decision. I think serving is the key. So if you've tuned out, come back in for just this two minute right now. If I could be Pope of the church for a while, there'd be a lot of things I would change, I know. But one of them is I would probably get rid of purely small groups that meet for just small group purposes, and I would turn them into service groups. I think that we build relationships, we get to know one another, and even if there was no relationships, relationships grow when we serve together. I think that a large part of what the church was supposed to do was to serve together originally. Now I will say the Bible doesn't give us a lot of direction on these points because when it was written, especially as Paul's authoring the New Testament portion in the letters he's writing, there aren't like all these churches on every corner that you could just go to and say, well, I'll try this one, I'll try that one. I mean, there was a church in your city. If you didn't like that church, you were going to go to a different city. You had to move because there was probably only one church in the city. But that tells us something about their view of choice. It was really like stick with the people that are here and learn to serve and love and grow together. They didn't have the choice. So maybe if they did, maybe they'd be just like us. Maybe they'd be spiritual tourists from church to church. All right, I don't know. But because they didn't have it, much of the language that's written is bear with one another, put up with one another. That's the language that he uses when he's speaking to the churches in Ephesus. He's saying like bear with one another. 
Why? Because you have this place and you are part of the body of Christ and you need to be in the local expression and this is the only one you've got. So, I think service is key. All right, a related question is, is there ever a good and biblical reason to change churches? Well, it's going to be hard for me to answer the biblical reason because, again, I just mentioned they didn't have a lot of choices, so it wasn't like anybody was writing about when you change the churches. Uh, but if somebody can think of a verse that want to push back on that, feel free to jump in. But is there a good reason to change churches? If so, what are they or why not? Yes. I thought of one where Paul is just the Timothy Watcher doctrine close. I mean, I think there are legitimate reasons to say, hey, I can't travel with this church. I mean, uh, you know, Presbyterian Church comes to mind where you have that huge split between, okay, we're going to allow for, you know, gay ordination and we're not. And, and so you, you do, I mean, that, you might say, okay, that might be something for you reason I can't travel along with, you know, whichever way this is going. I just can't do it. Okay. Let me give you a little list. I think Morgan's is probably one of the first one on here. Leaving a church, here might be some reasons you leave. First, I think you should examine your motive as to why you're leaving. And I don't even have a prescription of what your motive should be, but we don't even often do that. I mean, I think there's a lot we can learn about ourselves when we don't like something to be asking, what is it really that is causing me to even contemplate this change? What is going on with me? Is it because I really have an issue that's serious? Is there an issue of pride here? Is there an issue of dissent? I mean, there may be other motives. Just examine it, and I'm not going to prescribe you what the proper motive should be but please keep your heart in check. Number two, here are some reasons I think you could leave. Again, going back to the three things we mentioned, the first, they don't place Christ as the head of the church, they compromise Orthodox Christian doctrines, or they deny the authority of scripture or the Bible. I put asterisks next to compromise Orthodox Christian doctrine and deny the authority of scripture or the Bible because that's easy for me to say, and as Philip has pointed out, and I think rightly so, it's not easy to determine. Each one of you might think that Orthodox Christian doctrine means something a little bit different. I do believe that some of the fundamentals we've mentioned are non-negotiables. But you might not even agree with me. And you have to come to terms with what those things are. Study after study says that like, people in the younger generation of 20 to 30 have issues with the exclusivity of Christ. That nearly half of the people who answered the survey said they didn't really buy into the exclusivity of Christ. I could stand here and pound my fist on the podium and say, like, no, that's an absolute essential. You might have an issue with that. All I'm saying is that would be a reason to leave. But I believe that once you get to that point, and maybe like in the Morgan's example, some people would say the split that's going on in the Presbyterian church, like in other mainline churches, very valid to say, you know what, you've gone a step too far. We can no longer be part of the same church. This denomination is at a fork in the road. And other people would say, no, that's not really fundamentally orthodox Christian doctrine to the point where we should be splitting. Okay, so like I said, I can say what you should be looking for. It's just a little bit harder, and I'm going to admit that up front. It's a little bit more nuanced. Those are some reasons to leave. Here's a reason to consider staying. This goes to what we've already said. Maybe you will be the person who brings about some change. Like it says in the book of Jude 3, it says that we are to be contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So there are times when even if some of those three are kind of out of whack, you might be somebody who says, I'm going to stick it out. And that is exactly the argument that's going on in many denominations and among many people who think, I don't like the way this is going. I don't totally agree with what's happening. In fact, I disagree. But... To break that unity and break that fellowship means that I've given up on any opportunity to bring us back to a correct understanding of these things. Again, you've got to make that decision. You might think, who am I? Little me all the way over here in the back? No one's going to even listen to me at this thing. All right, that's a decision you have to make at that point, but I would at least consider staying, especially if the issue is something else. Like we were talking about further, like you don't see a certain program that really needs to happen. You don't see a certain service area that you think is sorely missing. I would try to be that before you decide to break fellowship with that church. Again, uprooting is you lose the benefit of the connection. You might say, I don't have it. Never been there. Okay, I'm not saying don't go. Saying just before you hit the door, think about that. Here's another one. 
Consider staying if the reason that you're leaving begins with these words, I'm not being fed. And I really emphasize the word consider because this is too personal to each one of you and I can't make this judgment as a blanket judgment, but I want you to at least think about it. If we are to be servants and disciples and disciplers of others, one of the chief reasons that people leave, at least that I hear to my ears, is I'm just not being fed. We have to at least ask this question. Are we really a starving disciple? Or are we a spiritual glutton? Some of the people in this room have been walking with the Lord and have a relationship with him for so long that we really should be the ones who are feeding others. And so when I see people who are in that position who really are mature in their relationship with Christ and who really have a lot to offer the church, focusing a little bit too much sometimes on whether we're receiving still enough, it's just worthy of a question. Can you disconnect for a while from being fed while you feed others? Can you serve others for a while? I'm pretty sure you can. I'm pretty sure you can go a ways because I see so much strength and maturity and gifting and love for the Lord and desire for service and even a heart for other people. I see it in you. It's okay if we can serve others during that time period. And there are others where I'd say, no, you really need to stay connected to strong teaching that's feeding you and helping to mature you. So this is not a blanket statement. Just consider it. Jolene. I also kind of feel like with that statement that a lot of times um, it's, it's almost um, arrogant to be like, I'm not being fed, so I need to find another place. Well, you know what? It, it seems a little, a little self-righteous. It's like maybe for one, for one moment if you stop and, like you said, invest in other people and be that person that helps them grow in their faith, God just might teach you a lesson. You just might walk away learning something. <gasps> Oh my gosh, what? Like seriously, <laughs> that, that happens. And I think a lot of times people people put their themselves, their, their self-value, their self-worth above everything else and above everyone else. And once again, they forget why they even have a relationship with God. Why? Because he commanded it of you. Because he wants you to glorify him. It's not about you. Yeah, some would contend that the best way that Christians are fed is by serving. It goes back to service again that when we serve, we are actually more deeply connected to the Lord and are fed more directly from Him than what we normally think of when we think, are we being fed? We're thinking of like the guy up there, the gal up there on the stage, they're saying things that are just like fireworks are going off in my head. That's good, but that's still up here. <laughs> that's still knowledge, and that's great, and we should be maturing and being equipped. But the place I think that we're the most deeply fed in a way that doesn't disappear 10 minutes after you walk out of the service is probably the way that deals with sinking deep roots and living with people that you serve. Last one. If you do leave, one of the warnings we have in Scripture that I'm citing from 1 Corinthians 1.10 is we should do so without dissension, without causing controversy. And that is a way that some of you might think, well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to slip out the back and no one's going to notice, right? I'm not going to say anything. But there are plenty of churches that that's exactly what has happened is dissension, controversy, uh, uh, you know, people stealing, whatever happens, you know, public dis discourse that's probably not edifying at all to anybody. So that's one way. Another way is that, you know, if you really do have something that's valuable to say, you can say it on the way out. That's helpful. But some people have tried really hard to injure those that they're leaving just by the words that they say. Because of some issues that are going on inside of them, they decide just to unload on all the people that are left behind as if that's somehow going to be edifying. That's something we should be very careful of. Yes? Another thing to be careful is oftentimes when a person of influence leaves, they take a lot of people with them, not intentionally at all. They leave, so they have to be careful about how um, people-wise, what's going to happen with the people left behind. Because even if they just slip out the back, oftentimes there will be controversy people will leave. Okay. Look, it's very hard in a very consumer-driven culture not to be consumers when we come to religious expressions in our faith communities. But when we do that, we're actually turning them into the kind of thing we don't like. We keep talking about what we don't like, but we're actually part of that. So in selecting and in leaving a church, I would just say consider some of these factors. Uh, they're not normally the ones I would say we think of. All right? Okay. Some real miscellaneous things to wrap up. Some few left. Two more screens, I think. 
Should the church denominations try to unite? Yes. <laughs> I don't, don't know if it's going to happen, but the answer is yes, they should try. Try really hard. Uh, what are good reasons for churches to split? Are there any? Well, other than the one that Morgan was mentioning, uh, where you really do have a significant issue of the fundamentals of our faith. I don't know many great ones, but I'm not going to talk too much about denominations because we covered it at length in our unity section in our series on Ephesians about unity in the church and denominations. Some people would say on the one hand, it's probably good that people have different expressions and the choice of the way they worship. And if that's what denominations are, fine. Most of us, when we think of denominations, are thinking of the rancorous division that's happened in our churches where now we have 30,000 denominations. So we think maybe that's too many. Cormac, did you have a question? I'm wondering what that unity looks like um, for this question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know like what that unity would look like because I don't believe that it would be ever a single church unity. Uh, because even as I commented in previous weeks, when Paul was planting churches, he told each church to appoint elders and deacons and was expecting them to be administered separately. Right? So if they were all united, would they all believe the same thing, just be geographically different? I mean, that would be one version of unity because we're never going to meet in the same place. So would that be the only disunity is geographic limitations? I think there'd still be more. Right, so when I, let's at least say what it's not. It's not an absolute one world church because I don't think that's possible. That's the universal church, which we've talked about over and over. Does it meet? Does it have certain things you got to do? Uh, but I do believe they should try to unite because they couldn't be any more disunified <laughs> right now. Uh, it's just pretty crazy the number of people that keep splitting off and splitting off and splitting off, you know? Now, maybe this is going to happen. Last week, we talked about mega churches, how they're just like a vacuum cleaner sucking everybody up out of little churches, and pretty soon, we'll all be in a movie theater somewhere, you know, listening to the same guy talk, and then maybe we'll all be unified again, you know? That'd be great. Monique? Um, I think at the very least, regarding should the church denominations try to unite, churches should be able to at least work alongside each other. That to me says a lot about a church. A church shouldn't feel weird about working alongside another church, which I just find strange because you could do so much like working together. That is a weird phenomenon. And I have a lot of reasons on why I think it happens. And I won't go into them. But I, I will say that it's part of the reasons behind our disunity and part of the reasons behind our entrepreneurship is probably driving it where we all think that we're the super person who's going to be the impact person. So when we see anybody else who's in the same gig that we are, uh, we get kind of ashamed, embarrassed. Uh, we're in competition. Like, I, none of that to me is anywhere in the scriptures, and it just makes me feel weird. But I see it all the time. You know, like, if you want the most awkward event in the world, just throw a pastor's convention. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I think when you kind of see churches work together, like a lot of times I'll see kind of an older church with a building, kind of rent that out to, you know, a younger congregation, maybe one with like a cool one word name or something, but like <laughs> that congregation might be kind of Thanks. involved with another denomination. <laughs> uh, I guess I see that working in situations where like that younger church might be part of like the vineyard or, you know, a Quaker church and it's like a plant and it's like different and it's, you know, it's the, the people at the, the main church or the, the older church, if you will, like don't feel that competition because it's like, oh, they're, they're different enough from us where, you know, like, I don't, I don't see two churches, I, I don't as commonly see, rather, like two churches of, you know, like both, you know, um, you know, college to, you know, senior, I don't see like broad, broad age range churches sharing the same space a lot, you know, and I think that's because there is kind of that competition effect, you know, physically with the space. If most church growth is happening through transfer growth, which is literally taking people from different churches, you already feel weird just about what the other church is doing. Are they growing? Are they big compared to me? Are they small? Like there is that competition. And again, it just drives me nuts, but it's there. You, it's palpable. And you're right. It's not there when you bring on somebody and you feel like, well, they're kind of benefiting from our ministry or they're part of what we're doing. Um, but I think that's a dangerous trend to always see like this younger, cooler generation, right? You know, like both, for both sides. First, it's not a completely integrated church. Really, you are really living in two separate communities. You just share a building. And second of all, there's a lot of issues in the younger churches usually like, well, we do it the cool way, we do it, you know, that kind of thing. And that's an issue too, right? Where you're starting to elevate the form and kind of you're starting to think of what is success and, you know, are we growing compared to the older church that's not growing? Like all of those things just kind of, you know, they give me the creeps a little bit because 
That's what's driving a lot of this strangeness among churches. Yes. I feel like um, a lot of times churches will like lend their church out to like a Chinese speaking um, service or like a Spanish speaking service or something that's like completely different and something that like could not be considered like a threat almost to um, what they're doing, you know? Because it's not a threat. Yes. Right. Because they're different enough that they're not a threat. Right. There's a church that's down the street from New Song that's growing to the point where they need to find a new campus. So they started planting little satellites even two blocks away, which is right across the street from us. And one of the suggestions that was made is, why don't we rent them the sanctuary when we're not using it? Like, they could have their service here. And it was just like, oh, it was just, that idea just went off like, a, like somebody farted in the room, you know? <laughs> well, it'd be okay if it was like some other group that there's no way where, you know, like some ethnic group is safe, you know? But to actually allow another church that's right down the street from using the facilities when we're not using them, just seems a little bit like, you know, borrowing your girlfriend's clothes or something. <laughs> and, and that idea just seems so odd to me because if we're following, we're all following Christ for the same reasons. And not, I'm not even talking about like renting the same space or two churches using the same building. Like literally, there should be nothing wrong with me saying like, wow, there's a huge need in our community for this. This is an issue going on right now. Like maybe in some community it's like poverty or homelessness or whatever the issue is, you know, that there's a need. Why couldn't I go, like, if I'm at one church, go to another church and say, we could use, like, the manpower. Like, will you join us on this? Can we do this project together? And, like, just know each other. What's, like, I don't understand the big deal behind that. Like, there's so much pride, I think, that stops anybody from doing that. And that shouldn't be unheard of. It shouldn't be weird for me to be like, oh, I know your church. Like, I know your pastor, and this is my church, and we're two blocks away. And there's, there shouldn't be anything strange about that. Yeah, it's ironic that all of you in this generation want to belong to the one world church, the universal church and not a local church. And yet the funny thing is most local churches, the way they operate, they really don't want the unity that comes with that. They want their church to be hugely impactful and to grow like crazy. It's just an ironic point, yeah. I think um, for some churches, we've got this one thing and that's good enough. Now we don't have to deal with any of them any other time. We kind of keep them at arm's length. We know what they're doing and that's about it. And then, so they work with them on that one or, one or two ministries and then but there's no actual real spirit of cooperation. It's just a thing they do to say that, yeah, we work with other churches. Yeah, I mean, that question about the, the, the ethnic churches is just weighing on me because, you know, like, a lot of churches boast about a sister church, right? Where's the sister church? It's always some foreign country, right? right? <laughs> you know? Like, what if you had a sister church that was, like, four blocks away? Could that be a sister church? Like, no way, man. They're in competition. But we feel good about supporting churches in, you know, unga bunga, you know, like all that stuff, right? As long as it's somewhere far away and we can say some funny word on Sunday morning to introduce it, like, that's strange. Philip? Well, I think one of the things, like, I think that's largely because of churches' focus. I feel that most churches focus on, like, themselves or Sunday mornings, not necessarily doing service or hour activities. And I don't blame them on churches. Like, that's the people who go to churches, including us, like, that like we don't want that most of the time anyway like speaking generally not in any specific but like i think most people who go to churches go so they can go on sunday and then leave whereas the primary purpose if it was service and outwardly focused then i think it would be easier for churches to want to work together i'll add to that by saying there's a lot of literature for pastors written about how if your church is not growing it's dying they've been brainwashed for the last 20 or 30 years to accept the church growth model so this isn't just about the congregation going on Sunday. The people who work there, who live there, who love this church and serve it, are living under a paradigm of church growth and church impact is all there is. But you see that only from your church outward. You don't see that as a unified church thing. You don't even see that as churches cooperating thing. You see that as that's your mandate. And I will confess that that's harder to shake. Like I can sit here and wag my finger at pastors, but I'll tell you, if there was an interactive forum with 30 people meeting right over there, I'd be a little weirded out by it. I'd be like, hey, that's our model. What are you doing over there? Like, what are you, how many people you got, you know? You got two screens? Like, that's kind of weird. I'm gonna get, right? <laughs> so it's easy for us to say, but I will tell you that because of a lot of things, bad paradigms in ministry that we all need to shake, we need to get over ourselves and over the impact we make. And I confessed a number of weeks ago about how difficult it was for me to learn about how to serve Christ with Christ being present, not like some absentee landlord. Um, I think if more churches could do that, forget more churches, if I could do that, 
then we could be more unified because we'd see ourselves both working for the Lord as opposed to like, hey, the Lord left you a task and you got to really rock this thing and deliver it to him with a big bow when he comes back. And that's the paradigm of church growth, I think. And so it kind of screws us up. Yeah. Um, yeah I think with, uh, with the causes and with you know, something big that churches want to get involved, I think, yes, the bigger things kind of tend to like, drag multiple people into it. And I think one of the reasons why it takes something that big is because everyone kind of wants to own the responsibility or like the glory or you know like have it be their like branded ministry or whatever. Um, up in Santa Barbara, I went to school. Like there were these fires in Montecito, and the, you know a bunch of like Westmont burned down and stuff, but a bunch of houses too. And kind of I think like an Episcopal church and Presbyterian church and some of the other non-denominational churches because Montecito is tiny. Um, kind of bonded together and they made this coalition called like the 4M churches for Montecito and under that they like you know helped people like help, helped house them after the fire and I mean they're like the churches took care of them and then they ended up doing a bunch of stuff in like actual Santa Barbara helping out schools and stuff but it had to kind of be under the umbrella of that name so that it didn't raise the issue of like well you know who gets the responsibility of this you know it's kind of once that initial resistance was pushed through and they were kind of used to working with each other that way they, they were able to do a lot more and it was, it was interesting to see and it was also kind of telling you know, or that it was safe now to associate, you know, to get involved in other churches under like some joined name, you know. And it took a disaster to get there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, but that's kind of thing like a catalyst had happened, Ben. Well, when and I were working on the race for this year, one of the things that we did is we went to uh, be in the Azusa Ministerial Association. And, um, like, I didn't know this was even going on in our city, but I, I thought it was really cool. Basically, um, they met at a food bank just down off of Irwindale. And it was basically that, there's a whole bunch of these pastors that came and they, I guess I met pretty regularly, like monthly, and they started off praying for each other and then kind of explaining like what each church was currently doing uh, service-wise. And it was really interesting because we kind of went in with the expectation of like, like going to the dance where everyone's wearing the same dress, but it wasn't and it was really neat to see well, I will say that I know there are groups that do that. I mean, so in defense of that, there are groups that where pastors actually go to support one another and do those things. Good. Morgan? Also in defense of, like, I mean, I know you're slightly bashing the church growth model, but there are millions of people who don't know Christ. So the hope would be is that as we're on mission, uh, every church should be growing because I mean, there's thousands who don't know the Lord. You should be trying to make an impact in it. There's room for everyone to impact it. So yeah, we need to figure out how to work together. Uh, I think your kind of key of service is huge uh, because I think churches can have joint ministries and overlap. Uh, that is our commonality, and it's you know in the name of Christ, and we're trying to work on serving. So I don't think it's wrong to have maybe a narrowly focused relationship. The, the key would be, do I actually care about that person? Yes. Does he actually seem to care about me? Yeah. Um, this is pretty cool. I, I like this. <laughs> My issue with church growth would probably not be uh, growing churches. As long as there are multiplying disciples who are discipling other people, then I think we're growing churches correctly. If we're growing churches by grabbing people from other churches and like building this larger and larger circus environment, that I think is where you can say that the church growth model is kind of veered off. Like there's been such an emphasis on it that we've almost done it in a strange way. Let me just continue real fast. Does the disunity of the church pose a threat to the Christian name? Sure. I mean, I don't know how deep it is, but I do believe that Jesus, when he prayed, prayed that, he, that people would know that he was who he said he was by our unity. So, it, of course, it affects Christ and his name and his body in the world when we continually fight. Now, there may just be different expressions of the church, and if we were all unified in some other way, then that probably wouldn't be a problem. Again, see our discussion in Ephesians on unity of the church, because I don't want to go into this too deeply. Uh, is it a big setback in a sense that it goes against how the church is the body of Christ? Yes, but we're never going to lose our membership in the body of Christ. And would Jesus be okay with all the denominations? Well, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Jesus, but I would take a guess. I would take a guess and say he'd probably, probably have a few issues with the fact that his people are so fractioned and so uh, divided on so many things and focused on those things as opposed to focus on what we should be doing and especially with an outward focus on the poor and those who are needy in this world and on preaching the gospel. I think that those things would probably be more concerning. You could almost imagine some of the things that he said to the Pharisees and he could substitute some of us in there uh, at times. Okay, so those are those comments. All right, real quickly, the last slide. 
why is there a need for membership? The reason I would support membership is because the authority of the church and the authority of the pastors, the elders, and even the deacons over the members of the church cannot be put forward if there's no way of saying, hey, you know what, you cannot really be a member here anymore. Uh, there needs to be some sort of way of saying, are you part of this group or not? Beyond that, I'm not going to you know, fight for it because I know that that would probably be a bridge too far for many of you. <laughs> I'll leave it there. What's the church's role in evangelism? Well, I can punt on that one. We did a whole role of evangelism, the Examining Evangelism series. I will add one thing about this, though. Again, we're supposed to be doing things collectively. Can you evangelize on your own? Absolutely. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we did our evangelism collectively as the church for one added reason? Because evangelism is not just preaching, as many of you know. Evangelism involves making disciples. And what better way to make disciples than to bring them into the discipling relationship of the church and begin to make disciples there. Very hard to make disciples when you don't have a relationship. And the best relationship to make disciples in is when the church is discipling new believers. So I think there's a great role for the church that, again, I would put primary. Not that you can't do it on your own. Not that you shouldn't do it on your own. But I think the church is a primary place to do it. What is the role of church councils, conventions, both historical and modern? I would say chief among those is the ability to look back at all of the Christians who have come before, who have struggled with the issues that now we say this is one of the core issues or one of the things that you would believe as an Orthodox Christian. I believe that the church body, you've heard me say this over and over, you're probably sick of me saying it, works through deliberation. We deliberate together and the Holy Spirit produces truth when we wrestle together. That's what church councils do. They come together and the whole kind of diversity that comes together to decide on things, I believe that's the way that many of the things are expressed through the church. Just like in the book of Acts. When even the direction they were going to go on the road or even the decision on do the new believers have to first convert to Judaism was decided through deliberation. They came together and you can read it right there. It says that they presented the case on both sides. And then the apostles and the elders basically retired and made the decision after they'd heard the arguments on both sides. That's deliberation. That's the Holy Spirit at work. So if we have the result of that, it's an Acts, or we have the results of many other councils that have come together to do that, I think they're very valuable to us. So again, we're not reinventing the wheel every single time we come to the scripture and say, hey, I'm just going to start over and see what comes up. And you can do that. But I think these are very valuable guidance for us. How does a church remain accessible to members, to new members, and still deep enough for people who are lifelong Christians? Yes. I think one of the answers is not to put all your eggs in the basket of Sunday morning. Like if you're a lifelong Christian, that shouldn't be the only place you're getting fed. Okay. Anyone else? Joseph? I would argue that the larger your church gets, the more difficult it is to um, be able to work with both sides of this. So churches should be multiplying and planting new churches, not not growing to huge, gigantic numbers of megachurches. Just because megachurches, I feel like, almost can't do this. Where smaller churches, um, your lifelong Christians are your people who are going to be serving and pouring into your new members. And it's a little easier, I think, to structure it. Okay, Jolie? Um, I, I, I find that question kind of interesting because it, I, it, I ask myself when I read it, well, what are people looking for when they come to church? Are they looking for, for you know, something that's easy, something that's, that's you know, lukewarm? And, and, you know, like, do they want milk instead of me? Do you want to be bottle-fed for the rest of your life? Like, I, I feel like, like, you know, Jesus was, was a great example of bringing people to, to his Father before God and by speaking the truth, you know, by being honest about it and being real and, and giving them the hardcore stuff. But why can't we do that? Why is it such a turnoff to people to go to church and get the hardcore meat? Jesus did it. People accepted it. People should have enough faith in God that he will sustain them, that he will, you know, give people understanding that if you give them the meat, you know? Okay, right. I'm going to completely agree with what she just said and say that, like, if your concern is scaring people away with the truth, that shouldn't be the case. Like, if you're really teaching from Scripture and making Christ the head, then what he said in the Gospel, it's not easy. It also doesn't have to be really cryptic and complicated. I mean, that's another thing that Jesus did, is the Pharisees said, here's all this, here's these really cryptic, complicated questions to trap you, and Jesus said, let's go back to the heart of Scripture and deal with that instead, you hypocrites. Let's deal with the real issue here. So it should be the same 
in addressing both like sort of the complexities that lifelong Christians might be hiding behind and also the fear of like what new members might be afraid of. You have to be willing to address that hard stuff head on and if it's real, if it's truth, it's not going to scare people away. Okay, did you have a comment, Josh? You want to jump in? I just, I think there's a reason that that verse talks about you started the meal and now you should be getting some apartment. Like, it seems to me that if we had this discussion, right, that's going on right here with people who didn't know that Jesus died for them, that that would get you nowhere. If the purpose of the church is maturity, you have to meet people where they're at. If we want people to be able to read, we need to teach them the alphabet. We need to teach them basic syntax and grammar. And then they can get the pros at some point, but you have to start somewhere. I think that it's important to find who's teaching each of those steps along the way so that, I mean, discipleship does that best, but I think that has to be done somehow. Okay, going this way. Philip? One of my thoughts is that, like, I, I see the validity of, like, not to, like, water stuff down. I totally agree with. But, like, I do also agree that some people aren't ready for, like, just there's levels of discussion, like, um, that you can't talk about one thing to hit something else. Like, my thought is that churches have, the only way they can do that is by having different mediums for that. I'm not sure what that looks like at all, whether that's, okay, well, we have a class on Saturday night, like, that people who want to go deeper into discussions like this, do that. Like, and then there's more general conversations and things on Sunday, or whatever, like, or if there's smaller groups, or if there's Sunday school things, like, I don't know how that looks. I know it looks different, but so I feel like most lifelong Christians shouldn't be, be deep enough they shouldn't be getting that just on a typical Sunday morning service. At least that's my experience. That's not that's not what most churches focus on. Okay. Um, well, my first thought was like, how would a church do that? Well, maybe instead of having two morning services that are exactly the same, have one that's more like maybe evangelism based where people can learn those basics and then a, the next service could be more like media or whatever. But I am kind of troubled by the fact of like, why something a little bit more meaty can't be used to evangelize. And, and I feel like sometimes we just want to make it sort of easy and fluffy and feel good just to get people to pray that prayer and be like, doesn't this feel good? Just be part of our church. And then once they bite and like, okay, I said the prayer. Now I'm a Christian, quote unquote, put myself that label on me. Then we will teach you the harder stuff and hopefully you'll stick with it. And I don't know if that's even really bringing out like committed Christians. Cause like we talked about like where Christ was saying, this is a hard road to follow. And if you can't finish this journey, then don't even start on it. Right, and we talked about like how heavy that was. And so for me, it's like, that's serious. Like if the Bible actually says, don't even start on this if you can't finish it. Like consider what it means to give up your life and you know, take on that cross, consider it. And we're not doing people justice by not letting them consider it, by saying, here's this fluffy feel good message based mainly on stories and a couple, you know, personal stories and a couple scriptures and like feels good, do it. That's like, to me, kind of misrepresenting the difficulty of really choosing spiritual life. Okay, Joseph and then Carissa. I think when you, when you go towards that media end of scripture, um, it also comes kind of prepackaged with a lot of people like, turn or burn, we preach truth and nothing else. And people are turned off by that. And churches, I think, oftentimes struggle to find the spot to preach the really media stuff without going overboard on that. At the same time, they struggle with, okay, if we're not going to do that, then what are we going to do? And they end up going too light and fluffy. Okay. Carissa? I kind of understand, like, people are on different places on the spectrum of their spiritual growth and, you know, how much they understand having a relationship with God is versus not. But I kind of also think that we have a lot of commonality of just needing to live by the gospel and the good news. Like, I... So... There's a lot that we do have in common when you have a message that can always point back to the gospel, that that's something that everybody needs to hear. Um, we're all trying to become more like Christ, every single person, and we all need forgiveness. So I kind of I kind of am coming at it from the angle of sometimes maybe you think the gospel is too complex. It's, it's in one sense it's very simple of like we all need that. Sure, and coming back to it for both groups is going to be fine. Look, I've read four different books right now that have all hit on one point, especially for young adults. 
Both people inside the church and outside the church wish that the church's teachings were deeper. That is the word that is used. So the person who asked this question about deep, that would be the word I would circle. That both appreciate deeper teaching. And while I understand that people are on a continuum, one of the things that keeps them even from putting their foot in the door of the church to even hear about the gospel is they think that we're going to give shallow answers or fluffy answers or we're not really going to get in to the complexity of life, the complexity of the scriptures, the complexity of the answers that we give. Sometimes they're just too simplistic. They want to go deeper, more scripturally based. And most of the time that means deeper into scripture, deeper into the real teachings, and deeper into places where we can say, I don't really know totally 100%. So people who are outside the church and people who are inside are both craving that. And I felt that. Like, it's true that there are times in here we take on topics that would probably not, in some ways, you think, well, that's not going to matter to somebody who doesn't even yet know Christ. But I'm not so sure about that. There might be people who are wondering, do I even give a chance to this thing? And the thing that's going to make me even give it a chance is that I'm hearing it. It's not fluffy. It's real. These guys are really struggling. There's some truth being produced here. Okay. Yes. And we haven't taken into account like the Holy Spirit, and so I just think we should really not do a disservice to God and say that whatever our message is, even if it is deep, you know, God is going to do the work, and He can affect someone, and He's the one that's going to take that teaching and get someone to understand. And and so, yeah. Okay. Holy Spirit's welcome here. Totally agree. Last question of all. How do we separate our faith from the shortcomings of the church? This really is the question that probably led to this series. You know, what is hypocrisy? Isn't hypocrisy when we're being very lenient with the way that we live it and very strict on somebody else? Isn't that exactly what happens when we consider the church? I mean, if the church is us collectively living in community together and living out our faith and discipleship, what is it about us that is always concerned about the shortcomings of the church? What about our shortcomings? Aren't the shortcomings of the church the collective shortcomings of all of us? I said a number of weeks ago that it's strange that that we are so skeptical of the one institution that Jesus inaugurated. And he knew when he did that, that it was going to be a collection of sinners who are on a road to becoming more Christ-like. And some are ahead of others, and some are going to fall back, and some are going to fall apart, and others are going to help others. Yeah, there's a lot of shortcomings in the church. I'll confess to you that as I've read the four or five books I've read for this series about why all the young adults are leaving church, I was so depressed, I want to leave church. I mean, there is so much bad news in it. And we could do a whole series on what a good church might look like if we're going to design a brand new one. But we're not there. This series was intended to say we need to belong to a local church. And the idea of the shortcomings should not be our stumbling block because they're there. And there's many of them. And they start with us. And we can start to unify people together who are just like us. We cannot expect that somehow it's going to be this magical place. I think that the shortcomings of the church were known to Christ. Because he knew that we would make up the church. But he also knew that in the power of the Spirit, as we are transformed, as we are changed, that that collective Groups should be growing more Christ-like by encouraging one another to do that. And when we fail and when we fall apart and when we sin, he knew that too. That doesn't take him by surprise. And it doesn't modify the fact that he wanted us to be part of the church. Okay? Yes? Sorry, just something I struggle with with that. Like, because I agree with you. And, like, I see my own shortcomings and other people have their own shortcomings and et cetera, et cetera. And, like... I don't want to put the blame all on the church. Like, what the struggle is for me is, like, I have my own shortcomings, but I don't, I know that I can't deal with those all on my own, and I'm not supposed to fix and deal with those all on my own. Like, that's something, like, as a church body, like, Christians, like, supposed to be loving and supporting each other, but it, just, it becomes difficult, and I'm not, like, even <coughs> disagreeing with you on anything on that. Like, it becomes difficult because the church isn't there to deal with my own shortcomings. Like, because a lot of, one of the problems is churches don't accept people with shortcomings. Christians aren't willing to say up in front of other people, like, I'm a sinner. Like, I will maybe generally, but not like, I do this individual sin. Like, because it's just not acceptable. Because they don't, not all of them, but a lot of churches don't support helping the shortcomings. And so it becomes difficult for me because I'm like, okay, I, I recognize I have these. And I recognize, like, therefore, church is a problem too, but I don't think 
I don't know. Like, I feel like, how do you deal with that? How do you even start that? That's a more practical question. How do I even start dealing with that? If I can't deal with my own shortcomings on my own, but the church is broken and so can't fix me either. Like, Right, but I would only say in closing, the church isn't broken. The people in the church are broken. But Christ's intention was that broken people would come together and still be his body in the world. So therefore, it is not broken. He loves the church. He designed the church. He wants the church to continue. We're commanded to be part of a local church, and we are members of the church. That is not broken. And even in that, he knew that we were going to do those things while we're broken. So I think that we need to get sometimes away from the idea that like the church is an it, or the church is a them, and they're this like big collection, and then there's like me with my shortcomings, and they with theirs. All of us have shortcomings, and all of us need to be part of the church, and it's very hard to get over that idea, because I know people group together, and they click together, and they form groups, and it does become a this, and I'm a new person, and there's, a, there's culture, and there's society, and there's all these things going on in the church. But in its purest form, in its intention, that's not supposed to prevent us from being in community with one another. That's why I said we could do a whole series on why is it prevented? Why do they do those things? And I don't want to spend all that time doing it, but I would say that's the that's the part of us that needs to be there. Let me close in prayer. We'll continue this afterwards. Lord, I thank you for the church. We take the church for granted. I don't know what it would be like if you acted solely and singularly without your people. I don't know what it would be like if we were left all alone to try to become Christ-like. But you designed us to be in community the way that you, Father, Son, Spirit, are in community and perfect triunity together. And somehow we're better, somehow we're stronger and more capable, somehow our gifts are magnified, somehow we're standing in your will when we are together. And Lord, many of us are skeptical of that. So Spirit, we leave this in your hands where we always do. We have presented information. Now you take it and turn it into transformation. Change us from the inside. May something that we said in this series pique the curiosity or tweak the mindset enough that we would be changing our mind, renewing our mind to becoming more like you. And I leave it humbly there because there's way more questions than there are answers. And there's way more difficulties that I can see from where I'm standing and from what I'm reading than there is cause for celebration. But in the end, you love the church, you inaugurated the church, and the church is your body. And so we celebrate you, Lord, as our head. We pray this in your name. Amen.